traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. When tonight's Twilight Zone begins, there is a date flashed up on the screen. And it might seem like a small thing, but I'm trying to recall when the show has been so specific, so intent on making sure that you know the date that the story takes place on. Of course, there have been times when a date has been specifically given to the audience in some way. The death of Abraham Lincoln comes to mind. But this time, it's right there from the moment the episode begins. The date is August 6, 1945. But why is that significant? Well, let's turn to the BBC News for that date and see why it lives in infamy. They reported, the first atomic bomb has been dropped by a United States aircraft on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. President Harry S. Truman announcing the news from the cruiser USS Augusta in the mid-Atlantic said the device was more than 2,000 times more powerful than the largest bomb used to date. An accurate assessment of the damage caused has so far been impossible due to a huge cloud of impenetrable dust covering the target. Hiroshima is one of the chief supply depots for the Japanese army. The bomb was dropped from an American B-29 superfortress known as Enola Gay at 8.15 local time. The plane's crew say they saw a column of smoke rising and intense fire springing up. The president said the atomic bomb heralded the harnessing of basic power of the universe. It also marked a victory over the Germans in the race to be the first to develop a weapon using atomic energy. President Truman went on to warn the Japanese that allies would completely destroy their capacity to make war. The Potsdam Declaration issued 10 days ago, which called for the unconditional surrender of Japan, was a last chance for the country to avoid utter destruction, the president said. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on earth. Behind this air attack will follow by sea and land forces, in such number and power as they have not yet seen, but with the fighting skill of which they are already aware. So on this date, let's meet our cast of characters, a war-weary band of American soldiers on an island in the Philippines, surrounding a cave occupied by Japanese soldiers. But far from being hungry for battle, the Americans would sooner let them be. You don't think they'd expect us to go at that frontally, do you? Well, when two airstrikes and an afternoon of lobbing shells doesn't accomplish anything, you better start counting your cartridges. Because we are the bottom of the barrel. I mean, when they can't move an enemy with the big stuff, that's when they call out the queen of battle, the ever-loving infantry. Yeah, well, what do you think? Month? More? Less? 
We got them ringed, according to all the poop. They're finished on Okinawa. The trouble with these little bandy-legged buzzards is that, well, they just don't know when to quit. Look at them. They're in there, holed up in that cave, beaten, sick, starved. And yet there's no one in there to tell them that the war's over for them. So on this very important date, rather than creating an episode where the president mulled over the moral implications of dropping nuclear bombs on Japan, which I imagine Rod Sailing could have done very well, this time Sailing once again tells a story from the perspective that he had intimate knowledge of. The soldier with their boots on the ground. While the people in suits all shuffle their papers and decide when they press that big red button, the soldiers are still living and dying on the battlefield. Tonight's Twilight Zone, a quality of mercy. It's August 1945, the last grimy pages of a dirty torn book of war. The place is the Philippine Islands. The men are what's left of a platoon of American infantry whose dulled and tired eyes set deep in dulled and tired faces can now look toward a miracle. That moment when the nightmare appears to be coming to an end. But they've got one more battle to fight. And in a moment we'll observe that battle. August 1945, Philippine Islands. But in reality, it's high noon in the twilight zone. First broadcast on December 29, 1961, written by Rod Serling but based on an idea by Sam Rolfe and directed by Buzz Kulik. Now Buzz Kulik is a well-known director around these parts at this point so I won't repeat myself but I will just touch on that thing that I mentioned in the intro. Sam Rolfe was the co-creator of Have Gun Will Travel and in the future would go on to work on Man From Uncle and apparently he submitted this idea to Sailing who made arrangements to purchase the story but Rolf was unavailable to actually complete the screenplay so Sailing did it himself. Something else to note in these opening scenes is of course an appearance by a pre-Star Trek Leonard Nimoy and it's a shame he didn't do a Twilight Zone where he played a bigger part, but although he had a few good roles under his belt at this point, I think Star Trek was the thing that took his career up to the next level. So at this point, he's still taking parts like this to pay the bills. Now, I did actually guest on a Star Trek podcast by my friend Zach Moore last year when we looked at the Twilight Zone episodes featuring... Star Trek actors and the name of the podcast is Standard Orbit and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So nothing hugely sticking out about Rod Sailing's opening narration here. We have a whip pan and some set decoration behind him but there's certainly a poetry there you know he talks about the last grimy pages of a dirty torn book of war. We've spoken before about the young Rod Sailing eagerly signing up for the Second World War, 
But it's this rod sailing that came out the other side, the one who knows what a dirty business it is. So enter Lieutenant Cattell, played by a young Dean Stockwell. His uniform is crisp and clean, and it's in stark contrast to the dirty and dog-eared uniforms of the rest of the platoon. Lieutenant Cattell is here to take over the platoon, and the first order of business is what to do with the cave full of Japanese soldiers. I think we'll have to go at it frontally. Just move right in there and wipe them out. Hey, Lieutenant, are you sure you got the right platoon? What about it, Sergeant? Think we can go it alone? Go it alone? Begging the Lieutenant's pardon, sir, but uh, you've just inherited a pretty good outfit, but we're not that good. This is infantry, not kamikaze. I told you he had the wrong platoon. I think he's got the wrong army. Your name is what, soldier? My name is Watkins. Andrew J. Watkins. Are you accustomed to talking to an officer lying on your back? Well, I'm not accustomed to uh, talking to an officer anyway. You see, we lost the last three we had, and there's usually a little space of time. Well, you've been assigned another one. You've got to learn to live with them. We'll start off with a little reminder. When you talk to an officer, you stand up on your two feet. We've been in the line 33 days, Lieutenant. We haven't had much sleep. You have my sympathy, Sergeant. My job is to lead this platoon. I intend to lead it my way. When I tell you boys to jump, you'll jump. If I tell you to stand up on your feet, you'll stand up. If I tell you to head toward that cave, with weapons port and bayonets fixed, that's exactly what you're going to be doing. Begging the lieutenant's pardon, Sergeant. Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic writes that Lieutenant Cattell was originally scripted to arrive in a jeep, but here he just kind of walks onto set. Now, maybe because... When it was written, they didn't know where it was going to be filmed, but because it ended up on a set, which was actually a Hal Road Studios, which was used for another production, when they've actually discovered where they're going to be doing it, maybe a Jeep just wasn't viable. That's my hypothesis. Now, you and I will all be at varying places in life and career, but I would wager a good portion of you will have met your own Lieutenant Cattell in one form or another. A person like this is not something that's unique to the military. On the one hand, he's in a position of authority and wants to come in and make his mark, which is fair enough, he's been given the position, right or wrong. But on the other hand, he does it with no regard to the experience on the ground, the experience that's already there and he makes his decisions with no regard for necessity. This is all to stamp his authority, build his reputation, and deflect from the fact that he looks like a kid who's found his dad's uniform. So we've probably all met someone like this in certain aspects of our lives, and I find him to be quite authentic in the type of character he is, the person who has either inherited a role or took the fast track to it or maybe got there because of dad's money but doesn't have that experience on the ground that the people who are already there have we've all met him but the man who does have experience on the ground is sergeant Corsarano, played by albert sami in his second of three twilight zone performances first came execution Next will come of late, I think, of Cliffordville, 
Now, I really liked his performance in Execution, and I also really like what he does here. I think there's a natural quality and believability to him as this war-weary sergeant. And there is a certain magnetism I find to him as an actor. He was actually in World War II before he became an actor. And I think I may have went over his bio in the last episode he was in, Execution. But there is one thing that I didn't touch upon, because truth be told it passed me by, you know, no research is infallible. Now you may remember a while ago I reviewed a dreadful book called Twilight Zone Curse of the Stars by a writer called Wayne Roland Melton here on the show. And in that book the author tries to create some mystique around the deaths of famous Twilight Zone actors who died under mysterious circumstances. And he was trying to justify this by saying there's some sort of curse attached to the Twilight Zone. And then in this book he goes on to fictionalise the deaths of the actors with supposed Twilight Zone-esque twists and turns. Now if you're curious about the book, please don't buy it. You know, not only is it really poorly written, but it's just in really bad taste. And I think I read it with just a look of disbelief on my face at how bad it was. What it did do was alert me to the fact that the first time I met Albert Sami in the Twilight Zone, I missed this one thing. And a New York Times article from 1990 said the following. Albert Sami, an actor who made a career of portraying cowboys in television westerns like Gunsmoke and his wife Roberta, were found shot to death in an apparent murder-suicide, the police said today. Mr. Sami apparently shot his wife and then killed himself, said the police spokesman. Mr. Sami was 62 years old, his wife was 55. A friend who had gone to check on Mrs. Sami on Monday night peered through a window and saw her body, the police said. Officers forced their way into the house and found her dead on the kitchen floor. Mr. Sami's body was found in an upstairs den. The police also found two guns that they believe were used late Saturday night or early Sunday. The police said that the couple had been separated and that Mrs. Sami had been living alone in the house. So it is incredibly tragic and obviously we don't know the full story about what happened, what led up to it and what caused it. But what is interesting is that there seems to be an acceptance of what happened by his children from the little bits and pieces I've read on the internet. There is a level of peace with it. They still show a lot of love towards their father, which is nice. And, you know, perhaps there is more to it than what appears in the press. It wouldn't be the first time. And if we were the one to step in Albert Sami's shoes, then maybe we would understand what that reason is. Now, after Lieutenant Cattell comes in and tries to stamp his authority, there's a really nice exchange here between him and Sergeant Corsarano, where, in a few sentences, Corsarano both pacifies Cattell and also relays to him that Corsarano's experience far outweighs Cattell's. 
And this is the beauty of what I think Albert Sami can do. He has this great quality to him. You know, he's a, he's a big, tough-looking guy, but he also brings a lot of nuance to things. You asking my opinion, Lieutenant? I'm willing to discuss it. Well, chronologically, Lieutenant, the first thing you should do is take that gold bar off your helmet, or take the one off your collar and put it in your pocket. The Josh may be half-beaten, half-starved, but they're not dumb. They're tough and they're shrewd and they got eyes. We lost three platoon officers because they made slight motions of commands with their hands. And that's what the Japs look for. The guy in command. I intended to remove the insignia. Now what about attacking the cave? So what this exchange says to me is, okay, you know, I'll pay you some respect, but listen. You're already making a big mistake just standing there with that thing on your hat. So why don't we just dial things back a little and start afresh? I'll show you some respect and you show me some. And then he explains that there's no point in rushing into that cave. But unfortunately this moment of mutual respect doesn't last long. And the next minute, Cattell is back to stamping his authority around the camp. But where is here? Where is this camp? Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic writes, This episode was set in a locale where Sailing himself was after enlisting in the US Army. Following basic training, he went to the Pacific as part of an assault and demolitions team. In 1945, while he was fighting in the Philippines, his father died of a heart attack at the age of 52. We notified Rod Sailing through the American Red Cross, recalled his brother Bob, for the premiere issue of Rod Sailing's The Twilight Zone magazine in April 1981. He asked for emergency leave and was refused. And Martin Grams Jr. hypothesizes that this lack of compassion may have contributed to the creation of characters like Cozzarano, the disgruntled men in the field, versus the likes of Cattell, who doesn't understand the reality of the situation, the things you can't learn in books, but can only learn with experience. So the divide between the two men is clear and things are getting heated, but is this enough for the Twilight Zone to take notice yet? Well, when Cattell makes his position really clear, it does just that. What's your pleasure, Lieutenant? How many men have to die before you're satisfied? Offhand, I'd say all of them. No matter who they are or where they are, if they're the enemy, they get it. First day of the war or last day of the war, they get it. So here's where the Twilight Zone steps in and Lieutenant Cattell is placed in the body of Lieutenant Yamori. So let's take a moment to talk about Dean Stockwell. You know, when he's playing Cattell, there's a certain amount of stiffness, of woodenness in Dean Stockwell's performance, but I think that helps here and was probably the point of what he was trying to do. Because Cattell is playing a role. He's trying to be this thing that he's clearly not. Or if he does have any military smarts, they're learned from a book and he's just going about it the wrong way with how he's implementing them. So Stockwell makes good choices here and 
It's kind of interesting to see him as this clean-cut young guy, when in a few years' time you'd probably more associate him with the more grizzled Sergeant Corzerano role. So I guess who Dean Stockwell is to you will depend on your age, maybe, because to me, he'll always be Al, the wonderful role he had in Quantum Leap, and I think he will be that for a lot of people. Perhaps slightly ironic that in this Twilight Zone, it's him who's doing the leaping. But when you read his IMDb bio, it starts like this. Photogenic American child actor of the 1940s. Popular due in no small measure to his air of innocence and his beautiful cherubic face with its dimples and his sparkling eyes topped with a crown of curls. See, that's not the Dean Stockwell I know, but clearly he has worked in virtually the whole movie industry, apart from maybe the silent era. You know, his, his range goes from the 40s onwards, so it's quite amazing. And he did begin as a child in the 40s, but he went on to be in virtually everything after that. While some actors will be confined to either television or film, he effortlessly bounced between the two. And while this is his only appearance in the original Twilight Zone, he also does have more Twilight Zone connections. He was originally supposed to appear in another war episode, The Purple Testament, but was unable to. He appeared in Night Gallery in the episode Whisper, and also appeared in a really good episode of the 80s Twilight Zone that I once spoke to the writer Paul Chitlick about called Room 2426, which I will get to someday on Twilight Zone Aftermath. So Lieutenant Cattell is now in the body of Lieutenant Yumori, and perhaps this is something that we look back on now as maybe a little unfortunate, Dean Stockwell being made up to look Japanese. You could say that perhaps they should have used a Japanese actor, and, you know, it's not up to me to say whether someone should or shouldn't be offended by that, and if someone is, then... I certainly respect their reasons for being so. I do think that in the overall context of this show, their intentions are certainly good in what they're trying to do and what they're trying to convey with the episode. And story-wise, it makes sense because the whole point is that it's Cattell in the body of a Japanese man. So that is kind of the point, but I think often with this kind of thing, we see it and it does carry with it memories of when it hasn't been done with a particular point or when it's been done because of inequality in casting or it's been done for the purposes of distasteful and racist humour. So it's kind of difficult to untangle that from something like this. So there are arguments for and against. You know, there would have been ways of filming this with a Japanese actor and showing that it was still Cattell. You know, maybe preempt what they did with Quantum Leap where he could have caught his reflection somewhere and could see that he was still Cattell. You know, it would have taken a second. But on the other hand, to not have Dean Stockwell do it, maybe it would have lessened the impact of it being him who has taken this journey. I think it's always going to be preferable to have the same actor 
illustrating that. So I don't know what the answer is here, but perhaps it does seem a bit distasteful now, but I do think their intentions were good then, especially in the context of the story and what it was trying to do. Those are Americans in the cave? Yes, sir. We figure there are 20 or 30 of them, most of them wounded. Are you, are you all right, sir? Where are we? Who are you? Who am I, sir? Sergeant Yamazaki. Are you all right, Lieutenant? Are you feeling well? Where are we? I ask you a question. Where are we? Why, why, corregidor, sir? When? When, sir? You mean, what is the day's date? May 4th, sir. May 4th, sir. It can't be May. It's August. August 6th. I humbly ask the lieutenant to forgive me, but I must correct him. The day is May 4th. May 4th when? What year? The year 1942. So not only is Lieutenant Cattell out of his own time and in a different body, but he is in a situation which is a mirror image of what he was part of when he was in his own body with his new platoon. But not only is the situation the same, but he's having to face the unshakable authority of the Japanese captain played by Jerry Fujikawa. Now Jerry would show up again in another Twilight Zone to serve man and he was a fairly regular actor on television with 60 credits to his name from 1950 until his death in 1983. Now in the Twilight Zone companion Mark Zickrey says that he feels Dean Stockwell is better when he's playing the Yamura role instead of the Cattell role. And I'm not sure better is the word, I think clearly he has to bring different things to each performance. As Cattell, he's stiff and he's putting on this act to mask probably the insecurity that he's not half the soldier that the men in his platoon are. Whereas when he's Yamura, that's when, that's his journey, so that facade comes down when he realises that there are wounded American soldiers in the cave. Because this part is the point of the episode, to put him in another person's shoes. And this time, the Japanese captain orders his men to advance on the cave. What you do to those men in the cave? Will it shorten the war by a week, by a day, by an hour? May I ask the captain, what is his pleasure? How many must die before he's satisfied? Offhand, Lieutenant Yamuri. I would say all of them. I don't care where they are or who they are. If they are the enemy, they are to be destroyed. First day of the war, last day of the war, we destroy them. Now when he's in the body of Yumora, there's no scene where Cattell tries to stop the attack on the cave. There's no sacrifice on his part. And I guess nor does there really need to be. His lesson is learned purely by him seeing things from another perspective 
and he is returned to his own time and place and self. And there's no indication of whether what he's experienced was real or some sort of delusion. And again, there doesn't really need to be. What is quite curious though, is that when Katal returns to his own body and to the point where he would have given the order, the decision is taken from his hands. He learns this lesson, but he doesn't then get the chance to say, no, we're not going to attack the cave. A call comes in informing the soldiers that a bomb has been dropped on Japan and the war will soon be over. So Cattell's newfound quality of mercy will have to be saved for the war he now hopes will never come. I kind of like that though, that the less obvious route was taken even just for a small moment. And this time, the Twilight Zone didn't so much dish out cosmic justice, but hold up a mirror as a warning. I think in these oh-so-sophisticated times, you could look at an episode like A Quality of Mercy and think it quite simplistic. But herein lies the beauty of it for me. It seems quite obvious to say, but the very simple lesson of putting oneself in another person's shoes to see that perspective from the other side is one that constantly needs to be taught. Yes, it is a simple device, but I think it's applied really well here, and I can not so much just forgive it, but actually applaud it for its simplicity. It has this fable-like quality to it, which I think is relatable to anyone who watches it, whether they're a child or whether they're an adult. I imagine similar devices have been used in other shows or other stories. The segment called Time Out in Twilight Zone the movie is pretty much taken directly from this. It's using this device in the same way when Vic Morrow's character jumps into the bodies of people who he has previously been prejudiced against. And selling this whole thing, I think we have really two great and solid Twilight Zone actors in Dean Stockwell and Albert Sami. I think the Twilight Zone was quite brave in that Rod Sailing was asking the audience to put themselves in the shoes of the enemy that they had been fighting not that long ago. And putting yourself in another person's shoes is not always an easy thing to do without the Twilight Zone helping you along in this way. Looking back at past wars with the distance of years, it's probably easier to do perhaps than applying it now with those who we perceive as our enemy today. The Book of War is a dirty one, especially now. And can we apply Sailing's respect for the soldier, which is on display here, to those who are not soldiers in that same mode, those whose attacks are not against others who have chosen to fight. See, that's the difficulty and it's not an easy one. But I think we should remember this, that Rod Sailing was a man who had been on those front lines. He had seen friends wounded, he had seen friends killed and he came back from the war a changed man himself. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to give in to hate. 
and to use the deaths of his friends and the things that he'd seen to propagate more hate. But he didn't. He came back and he channeled that into something positive, something that would hopefully sink in to the consciousness of people so that nobody else would have to be in the position that he'd been in, the one on the front line. Rod Sailing realized that the people on the ground aren't the ones we need to direct our anger towards, if indeed that's what we need to do anyway, because they are often just the pawns in someone else's game of chess. What is it, something, Lieutenant? Yeah, something. Well, I wouldn't fret. There'll be other caves, other wars, other human beings you can knock off. I hope not. God help us, I hope not. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice. But applicable to any moment in time, to any group of soldiery, to any nation on the face of the earth, or as in this case, to the Twilight Zone. Now, just a couple of things to mention before we get to some emails. Thank you to everyone who... Thanks to everyone who messaged me about the recent X-Files episode, the kind of homage to the Twilight Zone. I haven't watched it yet. I do have it recorded, so I will get round to it. But thank you for letting me know. And also a brief mention to the Rondo Awards. If you haven't voted for the Twilight Zone podcast yet, then there is still time. And if you go to thetwilightzonepodcast.com slash Rondo, that's R-O-N-D-O, I've put the instructions there, what you need to do to um, vote for those awards. You know, it would be really nice to win that. I'm not counting my chickens, but, you know, who knows? It would be nice anyway. And if you have cast your vote, then I appreciate it. And if you can take a moment to just send a quick email, that's all it takes then that would be great too, and I thank you. So let's get to some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. I've had an email from Spencer and he says, Hi Tom, I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast. Started listening about three months ago and I've integrated your show into my weekly schedule. Thank you for making my Los Angeles work commutes much more tolerable. It's become my traffic therapy over the past few months. As probably one of your youngest viewers at age 18, I commend your ability to time and time again appeal to an audience from all ages and locations. Well, thank you, Spencer. That's very kind of you to say. My mother introduced me to the show when I was a young kid with the After Hours, and for many years that episode would haunt me as I found the premise and the mannequins themselves to be quite creepy. Since then, the Twilight Zone has become a comfort to me through many life changes, and after watching all the episodes multiple times, I've determined my top two episodes are A Stop at Willoughby and When the Sky Was Opened. Good choices. 
Willoughby time and time again caters to the daydream-like experiences where we picture ourselves in a world that brings us eternal peace. And to quote the episode, a place where a man can live his life full measure. And when the sky was open leaves me with this very eerie feeling after each time I finish it. After listening to your episode from way back when, you articulated perfectly that the mystery is that we don't know what prompted the three astronauts to disappear. And with the lack of special effects, it creates an even more thought-provoking conclusion. I live in Pacific Palisades, a small coastal town in Los Angeles that Rod Sailing and his family resided in for many years. It's a small town, so I attended the same schools as Rod Sailing's two daughters, much later obviously, and my grandmother was actually a friend of Rod Sailing's wife, Carol Sailing. Wow. A couple of years ago, in our town newspaper, she sat down for an interview which I feel like you would find quite fascinating, so I will leave it below for you to read. She details their earlier life and Rod's writing experiences throughout the seasons. Keep up the great work, Tom, and I look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, Spencer. Well, thank you, Spencer. I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's so good that in the US... There are Twilight Zone fans like you of your age and it's unfortunate and I've said it many times that it's not really a thing here because of the lack of it being on television. You know, um, nobody discovers it by accident anymore by just switching the channel but it's great that you have and thank you so much for sending that interview over and I hope your commutes are not too bad in future. Okay, good friend of the show, Al sent an email and he says hi tom caught up on the latest episodes and i have to say you keep getting better and better i've always been impressed with the non-episode programs the interviews the book reviews and the story readings the review of the twilight zone play was equally entertaining i love the serendipity of linking up with an intelligent articulate listener of your podcast when you chance to be planning to record audio anyway of course all of your listeners are intelligent and articulate but James acquitted himself admirably. The background murmur added to the ambience rather than detracted from it, making me feel I was having a glass of wine with you. I wish I could have seen the play, but I'll settle for this. The episode podcasts have gotten more and more expansive and enjoyable, deepening my appreciation for the show. Because of your reviews, I now feel like season three is the best of the seasons when I never felt that before. That's because I'm gaining respect for episodes I used to think of as average, such as The Jungle. What with you providing the backstory, interspersing bits from the short story, and emphasizing the sound effects, even unreclaimable episodes like Once Upon a Time have provided real entertainment. I got a kick of your old-time radio opening, and I always appreciate the trivia and information. I thought I'd add that after this episode, Buster Keaton also appeared in Samuel Beckett's only film called Film, a work that befuddled Keaton, but adds to his resume, a piece written by an eventual Nobel Prize winner. There is a terrific documentary about the production called Not Film, which is worth checking out. Now Al then goes on to tell me about a podcast that he's going to produce. I won't mention what it is yet, but... Um, but when indeed he does start putting that out, I will mention it on the show. So 
you can check it out. It's, it's a kind of show that I think will appeal to fans of the Twilight Zone, so that'll be a good thing. Well, thank you, Al, for your email, as always. You know, I think sometimes with those episodes like Once Upon a Time and The Jungle, which are maybe, at the end of the day, Once Upon a Time, I didn't, like I said, I didn't think it was particularly good, but it was about trying to get the best from it, you know, mine, the things that were good about it, and maybe the things that I could learn from it. And that's not always possible, you know, a thing about machines I ju oh, is just an episode that I just can't stand. So it's not always going to be possible, but I think I always try, and I'm glad you've picked up on that. Even The Jungle, you know, I, I enjoy it probably more than most, I think. And I wouldn't say it's even a great episode of The Twilight Zone, but there are certain aspects of it, you know, the atmosphere that I think really are quite good. So again, it's, it's about trying to focus on them for me, I think. There are going to be times when I come to an episode and just be like, this is a real, you know, stinker, probably. So when there is something good to focus on, I, I always try and like to do it. So thank you, Al. I'm glad you've noticed that. Okay, another old friend of the show has written in, Stephen, and he says, Hi, Tom. I always enjoy your commentary, especially when your views differ from mine. You really like The Jungle, while I've always thought of it as one of the sillier episodes of The Twilight Zone. Stories about primitive curses can be spooky, but this one disappoints. I like the way this episode features jungle noises on the phone and on dark streets that gives chills down the spine, but the rest of it misses the mark. First, the nature of the curses are muddled. In the outro, Sailing states that some superstitions kept alive by the long night of ignorance have their own special power. Is this a suggestion that it was ignorant beliefs that killed Alan and his wife Doris, rather than actual curse? Alan's wife collected several protective amulets, but why would shamans offer protective amulets to people they saw as enemies? It appears that Sailing was making distinctions between shamans who offer protection and witch doctors who invoke deadly curses. So are the African shamans at odds with the African witch doctors? Do the primitive shamans want modern cities and dams, while the witch doctors want to remain primitive? Alan points out that curses result in slow and painful deaths, but no one who dies seems to suffer much, and being killed by a lion is pretty quick, certainly quicker and less painful than dying from cancer, lung disease, strokes or heart attack, or for that matter, dementia or Alzheimer's. Alan mentions all the healthy men and women who just died from mysterious illnesses, but there's no hint that they suffered much. If this episode is supposed to be a cautionary tale against modernization, imperialism and colonialization, the witch doctors are doing too little too late. An American company is building a dam in Africa because modern Africans have requested it, so why aren't all the responsible Africans cursed? Why aren't all the inhabitants of the city cursed? In the Old Testament, God kills all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah because all of them are responsible. The witch doctors are merely putting one finger in a leak of a dam that's been falling apart for centuries. Regards, Stephen, from California. So thank you, Stephen. I'm sorry the episode didn't work for you, but it's always interesting to hear your thoughts, so thank you. I've had an email from John and he says, I've enjoyed your podcast and the background details you give to the Twilight Zone episodes. Five Characters in Search of an Exit is one of my favourite episodes. Your treatment of it shows the big questions, 
but doesn't answer them. I think this was what Marvin Petal intended in his short story, and what Rod Serling intended in his screen adaptation. This episode reminds me of a similar story which aired on Theatre 5, a radio drama series from the United States in the mid-1960s. That episode, Five Strangers, originally aired December 28, 1964, roughly three years after the Twilight Zone episode. It isn't a retelling of five characters in search of an exit. Instead, it's a completely different story, but with a lot of similarities. In Five Strangers, the characters, four passengers and an airplane pilot, are all trying to get to Chicago in a heavy fog. The location of their airport is not identified. This, along with the fog, creates a surreal or dreamlike setting for the story. Like the Twilight Zone episode, the characters in Five Strangers do not know each other. But unlike the Twilight Zone episode, each of these characters has a first and last name, and each has a backstory. And while the Twilight Zone raises its big questions, who are we? Why are we here? At the beginning, this story builds the scene and then raises its big question. What happens next? At the end. One other similarity. Both episodes lend themselves nicely to a reader's theatre format. The Theatre 5 episode was written for radio, so it functions without the need for visual elements. The Twilight Zone episode with a small cast and extremely simple set requires little in the way of visual elements. The voices and the dialogue tell almost all the story. The one exception is the reveal at the end, and even here, it would only require a couple of additional lines of dialogue to replace the visual element. Thanks again for your podcast, John. John, thanks so much for letting me know about that. It's something that I didn't know about, and obviously after the last episode, you know how much I enjoy old-time radio. So purely because of that, because of what you've mentioned, there'll be a little extra after this episode of the Twilight Zone podcast to download and check out. And we all owe John thanks for that for highlighting this to me. So thank you so much and I'm glad you enjoy the show. Okay, I've had an email from Chris and it's quite timely, I suppose, with the um, arrival of Leonard Nimoy in the Twilight Zone. And he says, Tom, why is it that Star Trek producers never acknowledge the show's extraordinary debt to the Twilight Zone? Shatner, Nimoy, Doohan, Takei all appeared in an episode of Zone, and Trek lifted many of its ideas, conventions and tech directly from Zone. Beaumont's episode Valley of the Shadow alone introduced a version of the Prime Directive, a teleportation device and the society locked into mindless adherence to its foundation, a theme that was the basis of several Trek episodes. In addition, the Trek pilot The Cage is nearly a point-by-point version of the Zone episode of, as I recall, the same name. Roddenberry got too much credit. Ever thought about this? Regards, Chris. I'll be honest, I, I haven't really thought about it. I mean... I am a bit of a lapsed Trekkie, I used to be a big Star Trek fan when I was younger and I'm kind of getting back into it in a way with the advent of the new show Discovery, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, So I do have an appreciation of Star Trek, but I'm not really immersed in that world, I don't read interviews and so on, so you know, where where this acknowledgement 
would take place. I'm not really sure. I mean, I know that Roddenberry himself did have a great respect for Rod Serling. I think there's a quote somewhere, maybe after Rod Serling's death from Roddenberry. So I think that respect was there, but I'm not really sure where where that would be. But, you know, it's, um, it, it's interesting the sort of similarities you point out, and, and you might be right there that Star Trek drew from the Twilight Zone. But I think that time, I mean, when you listen to radio plays, read pulp stories, it was such a fertile time, a lot of imagination going into all these different things. So I think there probably was a lot of cross-pollination with ideas and so on but you know it's a, it's an interesting thing to point out so thank you chris i appreciate that you know maybe maybe people who are more versed in star trek would have more of an opinion on it for, for me it's you know it's interesting to certainly hear it but i'm not um that versed in sort of the production side of star trek i just enjoy the odd episode or movie these days but thanks for getting in touch chris i appreciate it Okay, one last one from our old friend Grace, who's been a friend of the show for quite some time. And she says, I often tell people that I've probably learned more from watching The Twilight Zone growing up than even from my own parents. I truly believe this about myself. There are so many life lessons woven throughout this series, there's truly too many to count, that seemed essential for young minds to absorb and understand. I hope this show is shown in classrooms somewhere. I agree with Amy Ball Johnson from your interview with her a while back about the Twilight Zone being a form of existentialism as opposed to just another sci-fi fantasy show and I'm convinced that this show is responsible for how I turned out as a grown adult. I was wondering what your opinions on this subject are and if others had specific stories about such things. I don't think television would be where it is today or for that matter generations of viewers without the Twilight Zone, without Rod Serling's creativity and his determination to fight for creative freedom and the ability to convey essential truths about humanity to humanity. Thank you so much Tom for ensuring the best quality show possible, it really is top notch, and creating a welcoming entertaining virtual space for newcomers and fans alike to properly honour Rod Serling's work and his memory. And that's from Grace. That's really nice of you to say. Thank you, Grace. Um, what you say about Amy's comments about, you know, the Twilight Zone and existentialism, I mean, I guess that's crept in in my commentary on it to some degree and um, quite naturally, but I never really thought about it definitively. Um, until Amy said, but it, it's quite interesting because on uh, Amazon, you know, the streaming service, Amazon Prime, they have just put on there to stream for free a show called One Step Beyond, and I think it was a couple of years before The Twilight Zone. Now, I haven't watched many of them. I've watched the, like maybe three or four, but it's quite interesting to to watch something that was just a, a year or two before the twilight zone and it really brings home what a quality product the twilight zone was in, in so many ways now i'm not saying this about the whole of one step beyond because maybe there are episodes that are, are a bit deeper and so on so i'm not commenting on the whole series if anyone is a fan 
because obviously I need to explore it more, but from my limited exposure to it, you can kind of see where not only was the Twilight Zone a much better produced product in terms of the production and so on, but the depths of the stories that they were telling just had so many more levels to them, whereas in One Step Beyond it was just this very surface kind of product where it's like like one episode was about a guy getting married to a girl and she's seemingly possessed by the spirit of a dead woman and it's to help solve her own murder. But I think One Step Beyond was pretty much just trying to tell ripping yarns, you know, these good stories. So, so yeah, The Twilight Zone certainly was a step, well, One Step Beyond, um, in terms of its sort of existential aspect. Thank you for writing in, Grace. I always like to hear from you. Okay, so let's wrap things up. I just want to say thank you to a couple of new iTunes reviewers. It's been a while since I've had any, so thank you for adding um, to the show that way. It's Yo Boy That Squid, good name, thank you, and also Snook Fan, both on US iTunes, so thank you for your reviews. And we've had some new, what I like to call executive producers over a Patreon, the people whose kind contributions keep the Twilight Zone podcast on the air. And those are Tony Quiritero, Lum Edwards, Jim Freyer, Thomas Combe, Lauriston Scott, Matt Ellis, and Neil Kinnamore. So thank you very much for them for their contributions. And in exchange for those, they get some uh, bonus stuff there over a Patreon. And I'll quickly run down. For a $1 donation, you get... A short story from The Time of the Twilight Zone, uh, read by me each month. And for a $2 donation, you get that story plus an episode of Twilight Zone Aftermath, which is actually a two-person show now that I do with people who are on the Patreon group. And we've been chipping away at that. And it's working quite well so far. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking uh, to actual people who actually listen to the podcast and their contributions have been really great, you know, getting all these different opinions on episodes of the 80s Twilight Zone. So I've really enjoyed that and that's at the $2 donation level. Now the $3 donation level, there's actually going to be some news about that on Patreon soon about what I'm going to do with that. Um, I'm going to change things up a bit, but I think what I change it to is something that people are going to really quite enjoy, hopefully, because a lot of people donate at that level already, even though there's no extra reward to it, um, because they just want to support the show, which I really appreciate. So there's going to be something a little extra for those people soon, and uh, I will announce that over on Patreon. Now, our next episode of the podcast, it might be an interview, or it might be another Twilight Zone episode depending on the timing of things but just in case it is let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what it is and now Mr. Serling next week an excursion into the shadowland of the hereafter Miss Gladys Cooper and Mr. Robert Redford combined sizable talents to bring a script by George Clayton Johnson entitled Nothing in the Dark the dark in this case being the little nooks crannies and closets of those regions presided over by Mr. Death, I hope you'll be with us next week for Nothing in the Dark.
our populations expanding faster than our colleges. For more classrooms and finest professors, help the college of your choice.